0: Well, good morning. Uh, We're glad you guys are here this morning. If you have your Bibles, open to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1 for at least part of our morning. Uh, We're going to be uh, at least starting out verses 18 to 20 this morning. Romans chapter 1. Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. You pray with me. Father God, as we open your word this morning, as we wrestle with it, um, as we wrestle with yet another tough topic this morning, Uh, Father, we ask that your spirit would guide us um, as we unfold your word and as we look for answers this morning. Lord, I pray that you would teach us, that you would allow your spirit to uh, guide the words of my own mouth, that you would allow us to navigate your word in a way that would be honoring and faithful to it. Um, Father, I pray as we wrestle with a hard question, I pray you would allow us to go where the scriptures go and to stop where they do not go Um, and to know the bounds of what you've revealed and what you've said. And I pray that you would just guide our time pray that you give us not just intellectual openness and the ability to wrestle, Lord, but I pray that you would also give us the hearts that are softened, uh, that with a burden we would know what to do with it and we would know how to step. pray that you would give us uh, hearts that are just softened and available to you and that you'd use this time in our lives however you see fit. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. I've noticed uh, over the years, every year, uh, TV shows or movies, there's a certain kind of plots and certain kind of genres that seem to recycle year after year after year. Uh, classic of those with TV shows or, or movies are the classic murder mystery kind of show, right? Um, and, and I feel like we, ha- we as a culture have no uh, limit to our capacity to take those in. So uh, how many CSI uh, TV shows do we actually need, right? Uh, how many lawyer shows do we actually need? How many shows about cops and people do we actually need? There, there seems to be an endless amount for us to take those in. Uh, also, I, I found there's often the endless amount of uh, uh, dancing and singing shows, right? Uh, some of you guys are way too into those. You don't have to admit it this morning, but we know who you are, right? Um, Then there's also the classic uh, romantic comedy, whether it's in a movie or just the the dating situations that are apparently reality TV shows. Some of you guys are pining and just waiting desperately until Bachelor comes back on in the spring, right? Again, you don't have to identify yourselves, but we know you're here and we know you're amongst us, right? Uh, But we will seem to have an endless amount of an ability to take in the classic uh, guy meets girl, guy marries girl, right? No matter how actually apart from reality those shows may be, right? Um, And then also I think there is a kind of show, though, that I think we often can take quite, quite too much of, all right? Uh, some of you guys have seen uh, the movie Contagion that's in the theaters. I will tell you, I've not seen it, but the, the, the preview alone freaked me out, all right? Uh, and there's this endless kind of uh, plot line along those circumstances of the virus that breaks out across the world that threatens all of humanity, right? Uh, and, and you watch that movie or you watch the preview alone and you're freaked out by anyone who's coughing, anyone who's touching their face, anyone who has germs, Right? And then there's a the kind of show, too, that's like an expose on restaurants whose kitchens are not sanitary or, or hotels whose bed comforters are filled with all kinds of disease-infested germs, all right? Uh, whether it's those virus movies or restaurants or hotels, for me, by and large, I think I've had way too many of those, all right? I, I end up watching those movies or even watching a preview for those things and thinking— I think I would have been better off having not known at all about any of this, right? Uh, Maybe it wouldn't have saved my life, but really my life in knowing all this really just seems really, really burdened, right? I can't look at hotel bedrooms uh, the same way. I can't uh, walk into restaurants that I once thought were great and tasted delicious, but knowing what's going on in their kitchens actually had a a clean conscience, right? Uh, In many ways, I've wondered, would I have just been better off not knowing at all? Uh, Maybe ignorance is truly bliss, right? And maybe the knowledge of some of these things actually brings a burden upon us that really life would have been better off if not knowing and just moving on innocently and, and in a sense, ignorantly. Maybe ignorance really is bliss. It's interesting, I think a lot of those questions are really coming now even to the nature of the church and particularly the nature of the gospel. And people are now wondering in terms of the gospel, the message of good news and hope that Jesus Christ has died and he's resurrected to show that he has the power over death and life and the ability to forgive you and I of our sins and to get us out of hell and into heaven. Many are beginning to ask the question even of that message, would it have been better off for people to not have known at all? Really, the question I've received from you guys more this semester than any other question is, what about those that have never heard the gospel before? What does God do with them? Surely the guy who's an African tribesman who's way off from any church, any missionary, any Bible, surely God will not condemn that person and send him to hell simply because he's not believed in Jesus Christ. What will God do with that individual? It's not just the African tribesman who may or may not exist in in in, in a sense in our scenario. But I think even to those that are uh, that break our heart even more, even to those that are babies th- that die prematurely, even to those that are mentally handicapped who may not have the opportunity or the capacity to receive truth and respond to it, what does God do with them? The question I've gotten from you guys more than any other this semester in this series on Heaven and Hell is, what does God do with those that have never heard the gospel before? Will he condemn them and send them to hell? The thought line kind of goes like this. Surely those who hear and believe go to heaven. Those who hear and reject, we find from the scriptures, are going to spend eternity in a place called hell that we looked at last week that we're going to move on from (laughs) and talk about something different this morning. Um, But what about those that have never heard? If hearing and rejecting can lead you to the possibility of hell, the thinking and the line of rationale goes like this. Then maybe not knowing at all would be better. Maybe spiritual ignorance would lead to heavenly bliss. Surely God would not condemn those that have never heard the gospel before to hell, right? That's the question we're going to try to answer this morning. And even as we answer it, I'm going to try to split those uh, kinds of people in those scenarios into two different kinds. I think you're going to find that God may deal differently with different kinds of people. And in particular, I'll tell you this morning of all the mornings and all the uh, challenging topics we've looked at this semester, uh, I'll tell you this morning, this topic for me is not one of just theological speculation, all right? This isn't one of just another hard topic and another hard question that we wrestle with. I'll tell you, for me, this question hits incredibly personally. All right, uh, Some of you guys may know our story. Um, uh, Marcy and I have a little girl who's two years old now. Her name's Caroline. You guys have heard stories, and you'll hear another one this morning about her. Uh, but before Caroline came about, we actually uh, had two pregnancies that resulted in miscarriages we uh like uh, a third of those who have pregnancies uh find in the first trimester miscarriage results and we uh, the first pregnancy we ever had at 8 weeks lost that child a miscarriage occurred and, and the child that we were beginning to get really excited about we lost a year would go by or actually about 6 months would go by and we would get pregnant again and at 20 weeks we would lose another pregnancy And that one, far more shocking, far more earth rattling, probably the hardest thing that Marcy and I have ever walked through, probably the darkest, in a sense, our life has been as we wrestled really with the Lord of what was going on. It was 20 weeks we found out we were going to have a baby boy. We had named that boy Hudson. We were so excited, we began to imagine, I particularly, all the things I was going to do with this child, uh, this boy, this uh, future Dallas Cowboys fan. Um, and, uh, and then a few days later, uh, Marcy's water broke, and a day later after that, Marcy's going into labor. And you may not realize this, but at 20 weeks, a child cannot survive out of the womb. At 20 weeks, lung development has not even occurred, and so that child had zero chance for survival, and yet we couldn't stop the labor, we couldn't stop delivery. And so there we held a 20-week-old name that we had named Hudson, held him stillborn in our arms. It was one of the most gripping, uh, earth-shaking probably moments in either of our lives. And so for me, as we wrestle with this question, I will tell you this question isn't about theological speculation for me. This question very much hits at the core of my heart, the core of who I am, and, and the hope that I have that a day will come that I will stand in heaven and I will see the two ones that we lost. <laughs> That's my hope, that's my confidence. I I look forward to a day that I hope that Hudson will meet me at the gates of heaven and will show me around. That's my heartbeat. But I'll tell you, even as we preach and as we go through this message, feelings and sentiments and hopes cannot drive the answer to the question. Ultimately, we have to look at the scriptures and we have to see what did the scriptures say to us about those that have never heard the gospel, what God might do with them. As much as my heartbeat is to see them one day, the question is, do the scriptures give us that confidence or do the scriptures navigate us a different direction? So that's where we're going to go this morning. And so I will tell you, it's going to be a challenging uh, mental morning. So if you're not fully awake, go grab some coffee or have your neighbor slap you. Whatever you got to do to wake up, all right? You're going to need it. This is the first morning and maybe the only morning that I'm going to allow slapping, all right? So just do what you got to do, all right? But uh, really, again, back to the question, what about those that have never heard, all right? We're going to kind of start off back in Romans chapter one, and we're going to kind of carry this idea of a virus that has infected all of humanity that is threatening its survival. It's going to be our controlling analogy as we kind of walk through this morning. And so as we begin Romans one, what I think we see is that a global epidemic has broken out. We talked a little bit about this last week, but we're going to see it again. Notice Romans one verse 18 for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all. We, we talked last week as we talked about the topic of hell, that ultimately as you look at Romans 1 all the way to chapter 3, what Paul is saying is that there is none who are righteous, there are none who provoke and receive the favor of God, the approval of God. All are unrighteous, all have fallen short of God's holy standard, and therefore all are separate from God, and therefore all are on default destiny to hell. That's what Romans 1, middle of 1 to middle of 3 sets out, that is absolutely depressing. And if you were here this morning in main service, they finally turned the corner into the last half of chapter 3, and the good news comes. <laughs> but the righteousness of God has been revealed, uh, according to chapter 3, verse 21, uh, in and through Jesus Christ. And yet, before we get there, before what we see, though, is that a global epidemic has broken out and that all are under the wrath of God. In fact, why are they, in a sense, all condemned? Why? We're going to find in chapter 1, verse 18, because we are all culpable. Notice it says that it's been re- revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What have all men done, according to Romans 1? All men have committed unrighteousness and unwickedness, but really what's really got God angry is that in their unrighteousness they suppress the truth that God has revealed. Ultimately, what God is angry about is not just that they misunderstood him and they've uh, lived incorrectly from what he desired, but ultimately what we find from Romans 1 is that we have rejected God himself. Notice chapter 1, verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Even though they knew God, we did not honor him as God. We rejected him. Verse 25, even more clearly for they exchange humanity has exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they've worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. Ultimately, the reason why you and I are under the wrath of God is because we have all rejected God. We've all said, I'll go my own way. I don't need you. Ultimately, according to the scriptures, we're all hostile against him. All of us have not lived up to his righteous standard. We're all hostile to him. We are all culpable in receiving the condemnation that's coming. And so the question that Paul is going to hit and the objection that Paul gets to is how should we have known differently? If we've all committed unrighteousness and we've all rejected God, why in the world would, should we have known anything differently or acted any differently? How could we have known better? Again, it's almost like we've been brought into the courtroom and since we've uh, said to the judge, how could you be judging us? How could we have known any differently than what we've done? Uh, it's like many of those times that some of y'all have been pulled over by a cop and you said, how am I supposed to know the speed limit? I never saw it, Right. How many times did that ever work for you? Zero, right? Uh, Ignorance is not a claim that you and I can make, and sometimes before a cop or even before God, and especially in light of what God or Paul is going to say of what God has done for us, and that you and I are all clear. Uh, One of the kind of funny things that's been occurring in our own home is that for the last month I've been playing hide and go seek with Caroline, all right? And so I'm always the one hiding. She's always the one seeking. She's just now learning to count. It's kind of a funny thing. Uh, and when she finds me, it's just like her, her world lights up, all right? Well, just this weekend, the plot changed, all right? And she began to hide, all right? Um, but she's really, and it started out, incredibly poor hider, all right? She had no idea how to hide, all right? So she finally decided she wanted to hide, and so her first time attempt at hiding, she stood right in the middle of the living room in complete plain sight, right? And so for me to actually try to labor this on, I had to look all around, look all the way but right at her, because there's no way to miss her, all right? And so finally I had to say, honey, like, here, here. when we hide, we we hide, like, Not in plain sight. That's the point of hiding, right? So we've got to go hide behind something, under something. And so that was key lesson number one we learned about hiding this weekend. Number two was when you hide, don't hide in the same spot every time, all right? And so she would go to the exact same little stool and try to get underneath it, which really, again, was was an absolute plain sight again, all right? But she would go to the exact same spot every single time we tried this, all right? So I had to try to teach her honey, like, Let's try to hide a little bit better spot and let's try a different spot too. All right. And so then we tried again and then we kind of made some progress. Um, but we kind of had to learn a, a third real key strategic element of hide and go seek. When you're hiding and the person who's seeking you says, where are you? <laughs> Don't answer. All right. So. <laughs> So I'm you know, walking around the living room. I know she's under the chair. It's the same chair that she's been hiding on the whole time, right? And I'm trying to you know, lengthen this out. So I'm like, Caroline, where are you? And she'll go, chair, chair, you know, like just screaming out. So she wants me to find her, which is precious, but she fails at hiding, all right? She couldn't have known better. No one taught her how to hide. That's the great privilege I have is teaching her how to hide, right? And teaching her a lot of other things in life, all right? But there's no way she could have known better because no one had made it evident to her, all right? And yet what Paul is going to say in Romans 1 is that God has actually made it evident to us and so we should do a better job not at hiding, but at understanding and believing truth. You and I don't have the defense we can make before God of, I didn't know any better. Because Paul is going to say that God did tell you quite clearly. So notice what he says. How are you and I clear about what God has revealed? The very truth that we've rejected. Notice what he says in verse 19. He kind of catches our objection when he says verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. It is clear to you and I why. Why is it clear? The second half of verse 19. For God made it evident to them. What is true about God has been made evident to you and I because God took it upon himself to make it absolutely clear to you and I as to who he is. The proof of clarity, the burden of clarity is on God. It is not on us. You and I cannot show up to God the judge and say, I didn't know any better when God says, no, no, I I made it absolutely clear to you. (laughs) The burden of clarity is on him, therefore it is not our excuse that we can make. In fact, the scope of clarity that God has allowed is, notice in verse 20, um, he says, for since the creation of the world, notice who is all clear. It is all of humanity since the creation of the world. Uh, In fact, in Romans chapter 2, Paul will make the point a little bit differently and he'll say that the Jews had the law that made it clear to them what they were to do and who God was. But the Gentiles who did not have the law, which means everyone else who's not Jew, had had a conscience within them that told them what was right and wrong. And so even their conscience was a conviction to them and a guide to them. Jew and Gentile, all since the creation of the world, are clear as to who God is and to what God has revealed. You and I should have known better than to suppress the truth that God has revealed. Particularly, what is the truth God has revealed to you and I? Notice the content of the clarity, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, the ones you and I cannot see, probably and therefore shouldn't be able to understand, his internal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Notice the uh, irony there. His invisible attributes have been clearly seen. How and why? Being understood through what has been made. Creation itself that is visible to every single person that's been born and created in this world cries out to you and I as to the nature of the person of God. Paul will say of Romans 1 that particularly it's the eternal attributes, it's the divine nature of God that has been made seen, that you and I should have grasped and should have understood. Yet Romans 1 makes it clear that what you and I all do is take what should have been clear and we reject it and we worship the creation, not the creator. We subvert it and we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And therefore wrath and condemnation has come on all of humanity because we have rejected God. It's Romans 1, that is Foundation Bible 101. What is our condition before God? We're all born dead. We're born condemned in a sense because we have taken the revelation of God and rejected it, particularly God himself, and have lived unrighteously. That which God has revealed to every single one of us, therefore brings us to a place where we are without a defense. In fact, uh, Psalm 19, it makes it even clearer as to what creation has told us. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Creation is pouring forth speech. It is not silent in what it is declaring as to who God is and to how God is. It is a strong testimony as to the character, the nature, and the purposes of God. And yet we all take what God has revealed to everyone and we reject it. That is what all of humanity does. And so the result of it is that you and I are all defenseless. Verse 20, the end of it. Therefore, you and I are without excuse. Wrath of God has been revealed against all of humanity, and you and I are all in a courtroom. And in a sense, it's as if our defense attorney has said, the defense rests. We call no witnesses because this is a a open and shut case. This is done. (laughs) There's no excuse. There's no justification. There's nothing we can offer up and say to God. uh, We should have known better. There's no way you can judge us. We are condemned before him. We all are. And ultimately, that global epidemic is going to sweep across. And what we're going to find is that what God has revealed to all is enough to condemn them, to condemn all. And yet he's going to reveal also, though, that there is a way out. There is an actual vaccine, if you will, to follow the analogy. As we kind of walk through this, the challenge is going to be, though, that what does that vaccine do? How does it come? And does all have it? And that's where a lot of us get to. Back to... uh, uh, Some things we said last week, there is an exclusive cure. There's only one cure that gets us away from this epidemic. There's only one thing that gets us away from the wrath and the judgment of God. And that is the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ that has shed us and cleansed us. John chapter 14, verse six, Jesus says, I am the truth, the way and the life. No one comes to the father, but through me. There's only one way to escape the wrath and the judgment of God. And that's through Jesus Christ. Acts chapter four, verse 12 says that there's only one name under heaven by which men must be saved and it is the name of Jesus Christ. There's only one vaccine, only one cure from this disease and from this epidemic. If you do not know Jesus Christ then you are under the wrath of God because it is in Jesus in his death in which he paid the penalty for our sins and he died on a cross and his blood was shed so that we would not have to die and we would not have to experience the judgment and the wrath of God. And in our identification with Jesus, in our belief in Jesus, he takes the penalty that should have been ours so that we can have confidence to approach God and find forgiveness of sins and eternal life and a rescue from hell like we talked last week. There's only one cure. the challenge, though. And the reason why this question props up this morning and has been here all semester about those that have never heard the gospel, the challenge is, in a sense, the method of immunization. How in the world do you and I believe in the gospel? How in the world do you and I, in a sense, escape hell? The means to that escape, the means to that cure brings up attention because notice what Paul will say in Romans ten. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on him whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? It goes on and how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Notice the chain of reaction. There's sending, then there's preaching, then there's hearing, then there's believing, and then there's calling. You and I call because we believe and you and I believe because we hear and we hear because someone preaches because someone was sent. But if someone's not sent, someone's not preaching, someone's not therefore getting a chance to hear, then there's no chance to respond and refine that vaccine and that cure. That's why he says at the end uh, in verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Even to back up further, salvation comes by faith. Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. The challenge is, Everyone has seen general revelation or creation. And it is enough to condemn you and I, and it condemns all of us because we reject what God has revealed to all people. But not all have actually heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, it doesn't seem like all can come to faith because not all have heard. Not all are holding a Bible. Not all have had a a missionary. Not all have a church on every four corners of the city, right? And so there's a tension. There's, in a sense, a distribution problem. And this is really where all the questions are coming. This is where the questions arrive at, okay? If what God has revealed to all is enough to condemn them, but what is enough to save them is something not all have, then how could God condemn those that don't have it, right? If what all have is enough to condemn them, but what we need is not provided to all, then how in the world can God judge those that don't have the gospel? And the scenario typically unfolds a little bit like this, that there's a tribesman in Africa who's wanting to hear the gospel. He's wanting to believe in Jesus, but he never has a chance because a missionary never shows up. And so how would God judge that person? The question is, does that person exist? And we're going to kind of walk through, but as we look at this tension and look at it in the sense of what is a distribution problem, let me kind of lay out a few basic assumptions. All right. A few basic assumptions that have to guard our answer. And it's this, first of all, God desires that none perish. We know what God has revealed to all is enough to condemn them, but what God will bring some to salvation is only provided narrowly. We have to realize that God desires that none perish. All right. It's assumption number one. Second uh, Peter chapter three verse nine, He is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Make an underlining assumption as we try to answer this question is that God desires that none perish, all right? He's not delighting. He's not celebrating when some uh, uh, rejects him and therefore sends eternity in hell. That that does not uh, delight the heart of God, all right? Second thing we have to realize is that God defends the defenseless. He always does. Uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 14. Let the children alone, Jesus says, and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such of these. What exactly is Jesus saying there? Um, even if you go to passages like James chapter 1, as James speaks of undefiled religion for orphans and for widows, one of the things you see over and over again from the scriptures is that God always defends the defenseless. Those that don't have a defender, those that are under accusation, that have no opportunity, God is always their advocate. He's always their defender. Last thing, and this is the more challenging one, I think, is that God has declared for all everywhere to believe in Jesus. God has declared to everyone that they are to believe in Jesus. Where do I pull this from? Real critical passage comes in Acts chapter 17. Paul says, speaking in Athens, and he says, Therefore, having overlooked God, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men. Notice that he's furnished proof to all men and he's now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he's fixed the day and he's fixed and he's got a judge and he's got one who's died and he's resurrected. I think Acts chapter 17 is really fascinating because I think you see a potentially a shift from Old Testament to New Testament. Old Testament, Paul says God is now overlooking the times of ignorance. All right. Particularly as you look Old Testament and you look at New Testament, what we understand as to the truth of God is so much more further beyond what they could have understood in the Old Testament. There's a principle we call progressive revelation, meaning as you move from Genesis to Revelation, God is progressively revealing more and more truth to (laughs) humanity. So what Adam and Eve understood is is, uh, much smaller than what Abraham understood. What Abraham understood is much smaller than what David understood. What David understood is much smaller than what you and I understand today. God has progressively through history been revealing more and more to us. And yet, as we move from Genesis to Revelation, as we move from Old Testament to New Testament, God always judges and he always saves us on the basis of faith. There's not one way of salvation in the Old Testament, one way of salvation in the New Testament. There's always one unified way in which God redeems humanity. It is always by faith. Often that which shifts from Old Testament to New Testament is the content of faith. Meaning, again, what they understood in the Old Testament is different than what you and I understand in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there's no way they could have understood that someone was going to uh, come of the flesh uh, uh, that was divine, that was going to die in the place of humanity and whose sacrifice would provide payment for sins. They had glimpses of that. They had shadows of that in the Old Testament, but there's no way they could have grasped that with the full magnitude that you and I do today. And so, as God looked at the Old Testament saints, what he did is he accepted them on the basis of their response to what he had revealed that that revelation, that truth that he had unfolded to them based on their response, their belief and faith in it, so he redeemed them and so he saved them. Faith is always the means by which God redeems his people. Whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, that is our belief in the revealed truth of God that is always the means by which we have approval before God. It's never on the basis of works. It's never on the basis of how we live and what we do. It's always on the basis of what we believe as to what God has revealed. I think Acts chapter 17 is fascinating because I think you see a great shift from Old Testament to New Testament. Old Testament is painted as times of ignorance. New Testament is painted as a period in time in which, and the church age that will follow, that you and I are in right now is a period in which God has called all men everywhere to repent because he's furnished proof to all men. How in the world do you take that and reconcile that with the reality that not all men have this proof or know this proof? The way that I'd reconcile it as we kind of match up some other verses is that what we see is that it is available to all who would receive the revelation, That all who would believe the revelation that's been granted to them. So as you and I receive revelation, as we believe it, God will continue to provide more to us. In fact, we see that throughout the scriptures. And what I want to do as we kind of walk through this is I want to lay this question out in terms of two groups of people, all right? Primarily, I want to look it out, in fact, in, in view of those that have age and capacity to know truth, all right? So this would be your classic African tribesman, all right? Guy who's just off in a tribe somewhere out in a field. Uh, He's got no internet. He's got no missionary. He's got no Bible. He's got no gospel. What does God do with that individual? How does God handle him? Um, He's got uh, no means to hear the gospel, so he's not going to believe in Jesus. So what will God do with him? Uh, A few principles I think what we see ultimately that I would argue that that person who doesn't have a gospel and doesn't have a Bible, who's wanting to know truth and responding in faith to truth that God has revealed but never gets enough to be saved, I'd argue actually doesn't exist. That is what we would argue to be a straw man, someone that we've constructed in a scenario but doesn't actually exist because so I think what we see from the New Testament is that those that are responding in faith to what God has revealed, God will always grant more, leading them to a moment in which they get, they get the gospel and they have a chance to respond. Here's what I mean. Mark chapter 4, here's a principle we get from the gospels. It's fascinating as you go through the gospels, you get comments like this over and over again that say that you and I are to be faithful with what we've received. Sometimes that comes to money, sometimes that comes with our time, our gifts. And sometimes, in like a passage like Mark chapter 4, it responds in regards revelation, regards that which God has revealed, that he'll say that you and I are to be uh, evaluated on the basis of how we've handled it. Notice what he says in Mark chapter four, take care what you listen to for whoever has in this regard, revelation or truth that's been revealed to him, more shall be given. And whoever does not have even what he has, shall be taken away from him. Notice in Mark chapter four, the parable of the sowers and the seed and the soils. It's this idea of uh, the gospel or truth being spread out and on the basis of how it's received. One might get more. I think as you look at the Gospels, you get a principle as we walk through it that says and and that highlights and demonstrates that those that receive general revelation, creation, what God has revealed, those that are responding in faith to it, God will continue to provide more. In fact, you get a fascinating story in Acts chapter 8 at the end of chapter 8. We don't have time to look at it in detail, but you get a story of Philip, uh, who's a minister and evangelist, who God is going to call and bring him to the coach and on the road that an Ethiopian eunuch is traveling on fascinating story as it's unfolded is that this Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53. If you know uh, the book of Isaiah and and that passage particularly, it's a great passage speaking of the sheep who be slaughtered for the sins of man and for the payment and the punishment of man. That it would be a sheep that would be slaughtered in light of and in place of man. Uh, This Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53 according to the book of Acts and going, who is this? I want to understand who this is because I recognize I I need someone to pay for my sins. I recognize that I need someone to die in my place. But it has to be someone who's divine, who can stand in the place of God and receive the wrath of God. And he's reading Isaiah 53 and he's going, I have no idea who this is. In fact, if I don't know who this is, I have no idea how I can be saved. And so what does God do? God brings about a missionary, brings about an evangelist onto that road, to that coach to share with that guy. And that Philip shares Jesus, uh, according to the scriptures, with the Ethiopian eunuch. A person that God had been preparing, a person that had been responding in faith. God brings about a messenger to his doorstep, or in this case, to his coach. And the guy trusts in Jesus, and right there on the spot is baptized. It's a great example. It's a great description of of an individual who's responding in faith to the revelation God has provided, but is insufficient enough because he needs an explanation of one to come and share and to speak the gospel. And so comes Philip, comes ordained and determined by God to come along his path. And what I think you and I see over and over again is that those that are responding in faith to the revelation God has provided, God will provide a messenger to move them to the place of what we would call special revelation, That which not everyone has, but that which God has brought to the doorstep of those that are coming to a place in readiness to respond to the gospel and believe in Jesus. I don't know that we actually have historical examples or real examples in our day and time of those that are responding to the revelation God has given them, responding in faith, responding in belief, and who never have an opportunity to actually hear the gospel. In fact, uh, there incredible documentaries by a group called Eternity in Their Hearts that de- detail in, in really powerful ways tribes actually uh, that God has been moving in, that has been providing and moving them to an understanding of truth apart from the scriptures. All right? Tribes that have come up with the idea of human depravity that were under the condemnation of God uh, that have come to the realization that we need a substitute, we need one to stand in our gap to receive the payment for our own transgressions against a holy God. And they realize that that person cannot be human because he could not be a substitute for us and for all of those that would trust that he'd have to be divine. They come all the way to that place and in stories, fascinating stories of a missionary who shows up in a tribe who has no Bible, who has no missionary, and they've been ready to that point to receive that missionary as he proclaims truth fascinating stories, as you see God move in miraculous ways. Uh, I have a great friend who's in a Muslim country and who tells (laughs) stories all the time of men and women who see dreams of Jesus. Jesus shows up because in that culture, in that time, there are some missionaries, but by and large, it's a culture with whose missionaries are not enough to reach the entire culture. And so you have men and women who have, throughout their lifetime, have had dreams of Jesus, Jesus showing up, speaking to them. They have a word of Christ because Jesus has been moving them to a place to receive special revelation and have an opportunity to believe in God. As you look at men and women who have the age and the capacity to respond in faith, I think you see over and over again, historically in extra biblical stories and even biblical ones themselves, that God will always often provide a missionary, provide a spokesperson to provide them the, the content of the gospel so that they can believe. Now, the question comes in and the real difficulty comes in. What about those that don't have the age or the capacity to believe? What about the baby who dies prematurely? What about the person who is mentally handicapped and does not have the capacity to actually understand and respond to truth? What does God do with them? If God has declared to all men everywhere to repent and to believe in Jesus. Then what does God do with those that seem to not have even the capacity or even the opportunity to believe? What does God do with them? Ultimately, I'll tell you as we kind of answer that question, even uh, the question at large this morning, I think this is one of these questions that ultimately the answer is I don't know. <laughs> ultimately, the answer is I don't know because I don't think the scriptures provide us an authoritative and absolute answer to the question. I think it's a question that we get, in a sense, a lot of principles that we're trying to pull together that provide us a trajectory to know how God will likely deal with them and t- so that we can anticipate what God might do. But ultimately, the answer is I don't know. <laughs> Uh, I'm a guy as an engineer that likes exact answers, and so this one drives me crazy every time. And yet I think there's enough in the Scriptures to provide us a trajectory to know what God will likely do. But at the end of the day, the answer is, I don't know. At the end of the day, the the answer comes back to the character and the nature and the person of God, because I don't think the Scriptures are absolutely clear to this scenario. And yet, in particular, when it comes to those that are uh, a child who dies prematurely or those that are mentally handicapped, we do get another example back in Second Samuel chapter 12. We know David loses a son prematurely, interestingly enough, uh, actually uh, seemingly as judgment to him. Uh, but he loses a child, and in chapter 12, verse 23, he says this, Speaking of that son, but now he has died, and why should I fast? David had been fasting, hoping that he could preserve his son's life. And then he says, and can I bring him back again? And that Rhetorical uh, question whose answer is no. He cannot bring his son back from the dead. The son has died. And so he says, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Uh, David realizes that his son will not be resurrected. His son will not return to him. But his confidence and his assumption and his hope is that he will go to his son when he stands in paradise and he stands in heaven. David had an assumption that for his prematurely dying son that he would one day see him in heaven. And again, it comes in a narrative, and so you wonder, is David right on with this? Ultimately, I don't know, but I think its inclusion in the biblical narrative is help for you and I. So I think it's a likely answer, yes. I think those that are prematurely dying, those that are mentally handicapped, who do not have the opportunity or the capacity to understand truth and respond to it, Though they would fall under original sin and the condemnation of sin, ultimately I think God is gracious and he will forgive them and welcome them and reconcile them into his kingdom. I think arguably for those that have the age and the capacity uh, to know truth and if they don't get truth, I question their hunger, I question their willingness and ultimately I think the question comes back to could God and would God provide them a messenger if they were at a place to believe and I think the answer is yes. And ultimately, again, that's an answer I, I would argue. I would say, again, I think it's yes, that that God will condemn them because God could provide them an answer. And God, I think in their rejection, even of general revelation, that that is enough to condemn them. And they stand condemned without an excuse. So the great question as we kind of wrap up then is, what do we do with this? <laughs> I think a lot of people have had this question. I think I might be answering it in ways that you didn't anticipate or, or maybe even in ways that you don't like. Uh, but let me kind of spin it to some practical angles of what do we do. Uh, ultimately, let me say, I think so many of y'all have noticed this semester have this question. Uh, it was a question I wrestled with in college. It was a question I wrestled with in seminary. I think a lot of people have it. I, I think in light of how many people have it, I want to spin the question around and, and ask, in light of our having the question, what do we do with it? If so many of us are that concerned with those that don't have the gospel and don't have means to hear the gospel, uh, then let me challenge us to do more than just ask the question, Right? If so many of us are logically or theologically burdened by the reality of the fact that God might judge and condemn to hell those that have never heard the gospel, then my hope is our burden moves us to do far more than just ask the question, right? And my hope, and, and where we kind of wrap up a little bit this morning is similar to last week in the light of what hell is and how it looks, uh, that we end this morning a little bit like last week, and, and I challenge us, if we're burdened for those that may not have the gospel, let's get out there and share the gospel, Right? Uh, if we're not 100% clear of the answer, then we sure as heck better be motivated to get out there and be the ones who are speaking it and sharing it. Similar to where we ended last week, in light of what hell is, uh, then our hearts ought to be burdened, our hearts ought to be compassioned to be the ones out there to be speaking a message of hope, a message that for some is not within their reach and for some is not within uh, their chance to hear. And in many ways, the answer to the question may be You. <laughs> The fact that you're answering or asking the question may be the very means by which God is moving you to be part of the solution, that you would be one who would take the gospel places that have never heard it. And I'll tell you, uh, part of my gifting, part of my passion really is teaching. All right, I love to teach. I love a Bible study. I love even particularly interactive Bible studies far more than a sermon. All right, But I'll tell you, having spent a couple years in East Asia, having been in Muslim countries as well, uh, there is nothing like sitting there with an individual who's never heard the gospel. Ever in their life, and they think that Jesus is Santa Claus, right? And you have the opportunity to kind of be the first one ever to share with them. It's like skiing down a slope that is completely pristine because no one has been on it before, and you have the first opportunity and the first chance ever to share the gospel with them. There is nothing like that. In many areas, that, that may be right here on campus at Blinn or AM, but I can guarantee you it is very much the case overseas. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about missions. We're going to talk about the call that we have as a church and as we have as the people of God to take the gospel to all nations. And we'll come back and we'll talk about that. But ultimately, I think that part of the reason why you might be asking the question is part of what God is beginning to do is stir in your own heart to move you to a place that maybe you'd consider stepping into a culture and to a people that you don't know, but to a culture and a people that have never heard the gospel. There is nothing like it, All right, There's nothing like sitting down with an individual and being the first one ever to share with them. It is a privilege, and it is a blessing, and it is an opportunity unlike any other. So let me challenge you, even as you begin to think about your summers and as you begin to think about the rest of your college time, let me plead with you to find some moment, find some opportunity at some point to be overseas. To step into a culture, into a place that maybe has never heard the gospel before, because there are countries that are like that, and there are places that we're going every year and every summer. Come with us, all right? We'll talk more about that in two weeks. But let me lastly kind of end up uh, on another angle of this challenge and say, If you're asking the question uh, and concerned with what others don't have and their accountability with what they don't have, I think part of the question might also be to spin it on you and say, uh, how are you being evaluated though on the basis of what you do have? You are those that have heard the gospel. You are those that have that incredible treasure. What are you doing with it? (laughs) Even more particularly, i me ask you not just what are you doing with it in terms of speaking it, but is it actually applying and is it actually integrating and, and, and reaching deep into your life? I think this is a great morning and a great talk and a great question that can stay completely intellectual, right? Uh, it can be a, a logical argument that we're, we're trying to establish, that we're trying to build. But ultimately, any morning, any time in the word of God is never meant to stay logical and stay intellectual. It's meant to grip our heart and it's meant to move our actions. And ultimately, in the light of the truth that you've received, how are you living in it? I think Romans 1 is fascinating because it says that they were men whose unrighteousness and wickedness was suppressing the truth of God. I think for many of us, actually, I think sometimes Christians are the worst witnesses for the truth of God. Because we're ones who have it, but we've suppressed it by how we're living. Let me ask you, how are you living? Are you living out the gospel? Are you putting it on display? What do people think of the truth of God in light of how you're living? My greatest challenge, my greatest difficulty is not in the intellectual, but it is in the emotional and it is in the volitional. It is taking what I understand and applying it and actually living it out and taking the time to do that. That is where I am the weakest in my life. That's why marriage to a woman who is so great at that is so beneficial to me and surrounding myself with the people of God that are so uh, balancing me out is so beneficial and so helpful. And so let me challenge you as well. Are you great at the intellectual (laughs) Are you great at the mental and understanding what truth is, but will you take the time to allow it to to penetrate the level of your emotions and to actually gain a a foothold to change your behavior? Notice in Romans 1, it was those whose behavior was suppressing the truth. What is your behavior doing? Is is it a suppressing of the truth of God, or is it a lifting high of the truth of God and putting it on display? I think for all of us, we have areas of hypocrisy in our life, areas where the truth of God has not yet really reached in and, and brought change to. I me challenge you to spend some time with the Lord this week and ask him, hey, where is it that my life really is not, uh, in a sense, aligned with what you have revealed? Where is my life in its behavior suppressing the truth as you revealed it to be, and how can I bring about change? Uh, It takes some courage to actually go before the Lord and to have that kind of moment where you say, Lord, hey, look at my life. Examine my heart and reveal to me where I need to change. I want to challenge you as we walk away from a morning like this that can be so intellectual uh, that you not let it stop there. (laughs) If we're so concerned with what, how God will deem accountable those that do not have truth, the greater question for you this morning might be, how does God deem you accountable with the truth you do have? Are you faithful with it? Are you proclaiming it loudly and clearly? And are you living uh, aligned with it as well? Is your life a living testimony of the truth God has revealed or is there a suppression and a blanket over that? You and I were given a light that you and I are to shine it brightly. And the question is, how are we living? How are we living that out? That's my hope for us. And so let me pray for us and then we'll talk about lunch. Father God, I give you great thanks for the truth that you revealed. Uh, Father, we ask and we wrestle with those that may not have heard this truth and for the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the reality for many of us is we we have it. and Therefore, we have an opportunity and we have an obligation to be spokespeople for you. You called us as ambassadors of your kingdom. and Lord, I pray that we would represent you well, not just in our message, but even in our lifestyle. I pray that we would be those that would put the truth uh, that you revealed to us on display and that we live it out. Uh, that the way that we live, the way that we speak, the way that we date, the way that we uh, do school, that every arena of our life, Lord, I pray that our faith would dictate it. I pray that our faith and the truth that you revealed would uh, align and inform and direct the way that we live. I pray that you would allow us to be uh, those of integrity in which our lives and our, and our beliefs are integrated and connected. Father, allow us not to be those of hypocrisy. Allow us to not be those of uh, division whose, whose beliefs and whose lives don't match up. Father, I pray that you would give us courage to hear your voice, your quiet uh, leading of your spirit that comes so specifically, <laughs> not with a blanket. We're awful. and We have no part in you, but a very specific area of conviction of change. I pray that you would allow us to hear that, uh, realizing and knowing that you won't reveal everything, but you will reveal things one by one uh, as you bring transformation and as we change more and more into your image. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.